This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me on this budget day at the state capitol. All signs are pointing to a lean budget proposal from Governor Ned Lamont. That's even though he's talked about having the wind at our back in an economic sense, with the state having benefited from higher than expected tax revenues coming from high income earners who are doing well on Wall Street. Now, State Senate President Pro Tem Martin Looney sees things a little bit differently. The state's second most powerful Democrat sees a disconnect between the stock market and the reality of most people's lives in Connecticut, and he wants to raise taxes on the wealthy to help struggling cities, towns, and residents. So how much in taxes and who pays? Those are some of the questions I asked Looney in our budget preview conversation earlier this week. We also discussed Lamont's hard line against tax increases, as well as a few ways lawmakers might look to raise revenue this year, legal marijuana and sports betting. And we addressed something that came up in Mark Pazniokas's mirror story about the relationship between Lamont and legislators, how a governor who hasn't had to deal with deal-making for the better part of a year will actually work with the General Assembly. Martin Looney, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, John. It's great to be with you this morning. The governor and others have suggested that this legislative session, we are probably going to see some action on legalized marijuana in the state, and we're probably going to see some action on sports betting in the state. Uh, Would you bet on both of those being part of what happens this legislative session? Well, I'm I'm certainly hopeful on both. I think the time has come that we need to act on both of those because we do need those revenue streams. Uh, You see how difficult it is to raise revenue from any of our conventional uh, sources. And uh, clearly, the cannabis is being sold all around us now. Uh, People travel from Connecticut every day up to Northampton, Massachusetts and other places. I think we need that uh, that revenue. But we also need uh, to look at that in a way that uh, uh, recognizes that uh, people of color in urban communities have been victimized by the uh, the really uh, uh, unjust uh, war on drugs, the way it was conducted over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, we need to support minority entrepreneurs in urban areas. Uh, one of the problems in other states with the uh, inaction of, uh, of uh, legalizing cannabis is that the franchises have been bought up by wealthy people coming in from out of state because you're still not able to get conventional financing as long as it's illegal at the federal level and you can't go to get a, uh, a loan, an FDIC insured entity, there has to be uh, private financing. So we have to find ways to to bring people into that system as entrepreneurs who may have challenged getting financing, but it's important for us uh, to do that this year, as well as uh, to get revenue from sports betting and high lottery uh, and all of those things. Again, our situation is more complicated than other states who were able to just legislate that directly. Uh, we have to first have the governor negotiate a compact with the tribes to allow us to go forward. And I'm certainly Uh, hopeful that we're close to having that as well. The governor recently told my colleague, Mark Pazniokas, that he kind of liked being able to govern without the legislature around for the year. What what was your, what was your thought when you read that? I hope he was kidding. (laughs) Do you think he was kidding? (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out as we go along. (laughs) Are, 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 Are you hopeful that you can work with this governor on some of these issues? Because it seems as though having been apart for this entire year. And also there's a big gap on some of these key issues in terms of the way he thinks about them and the way you think about them. Do you think that you can work with the governor? Oh, yes, we will come together as, uh, as we always do uh, with Governor Malloy and other governors that, that uh, the governor proposes his budget and then our appropriations and our finance committees uh, swing into action. We have uh, our appropriations committee through its subcommittee structure looks at every aspect of the governor's uh, budget and comes up with its legislative response. Uh, and then there is uh, 
some more discussion after that. We expect there'll be a, a fiscal committee vote in, in finance and appropriations by the end of April in response to what the governor proposes. And we'll go through our, our normal process that will result in a, a compromise with him at the end that we can uh, vote on before the end of the session in June. Maybe you can talk about the plan that you've put forward that would raise taxes on the richest individuals in the state in a couple of different ways. This is obviously something that differs quite a bit from what the governor is expected to lay out. But maybe you can talk about your plan and why you are proposing it at this time. Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, There are a couple of components to it, as you said. Uh, One proposal is to have a separate uh, 1% tax on capital gains income, but only applying to those who are at uh, the highest level of income, that is those who pay uh, the maximum state income tax of 6.99%. So this extra tax of 1% would apply only to that category of individuals and would be a separate uh, 1% capital gains tax. Uh, If you look at it historically, our capital gains tax actually came down in 1991, when the general state income tax was was passed, at, at that time, there was a surcharge on capital gains, a dividend and interest income uh, that actually was in, in double digits. Uh, and with the income tax passage in uh, 1991, uh, income of all categories wound up being taxed at four and a half percent. That was a, a, a something of political necessity because uh, at the time, the uh, uh, the state Senate, uh, I was a member of the House at the time, but the state Senate uh, did not have enough votes to pass a Uh, an income tax, and the uh, income tax had to be drawn to meet the specifications of Senator Bill Nickerson of Greenwich, who was willing to vote for an income tax, but only a flat rate tax. Uh, In the House at the time, there were no votes to pass a more progressive uh, income tax. And it has been our struggle since 1991 to build more progressivity into the income tax. And we've done that a few times. We did it once during the rail administration uh, in the 2009 uh, budget and then again, twice, I think, during the Malloy administration, where we uh, where we built in some progressivity in, in the rate structure. Uh, so now most people in Connecticut pay a blended rate on their income. So a certain amount is taxed up to a certain level and then uh, an increment above that at a higher level. And it's only people at the uh, at, at the very high levels who are paying the full stated amount of 6.99% uh, or 6.9 in the next category on all of their income. So, so my proposal is to just have a separate tax of 1% on the highest level of capital gains. And that would raise about $131 million. But it's important to realize how much uh, uh, that capital gains, or, or as we call it, the estimates and finals uh, portion of the income tax uh, brings in in Connecticut, because it brings in about a third of our income tax uh, uh, overall. So the, the income tax that's uh, taken out of people's paychecks uh, weekly or biweekly or, or monthly uh, brings in uh, uh, about 70% or a little less, but the rest of it comes from people who pay uh, their taxes quarterly because it's uh, taxes based on uh, investment income. In fact, uh, uh, we had one study uh, done that showed that people who make under $100,000 a year, uh, generally more than 90% of their income uh, from, comes through wages. So less than 10% is through investment income. Once you reach the $2 million annual level of income, more than 80% of that is is investment income and dividends and interest income. So the typical, if there is such thing as a typical person making $2 million a year, uh, that person may have uh, 400,000 of earned income on average, but 1.6 million of investment income. Uh, so it really shows you how much uh, wealth there, there really is. And uh, so this proposal would be a modest 1% increment uh, only on the highest levels and only on the, uh, only on the capital gains portion of that income. Obviously, there is quite a bit of wealth in the state. What we've seen recently is because the stock market 
surprisingly, I suppose, has done so well during the bulk of the pandemic, we actually saw uh, a larger than expected uh, tax windfall from these very capital gains. I guess I'm wondering if if now's the time to do this. I mean, Governor Lamont and others say you tax these folks too high, they're going to get up and leave Connecticut. Well, I think uh, that is a legitimate uh, worry only if we were to really tax them high. That is adding a great deal uh, to what they're currently paying. I think 1% is not uh, not a critical point of having things go over a cliff. In fact, uh, what I've been told from many, many financial advisors is that uh, people of great wealth are more sensitive to the estate taxes in a given state. When they do their estate planning, uh, they are more concerned about uh, the assets they are going to be passing on and what the uh, estate tax plan is in the state, as opposed to what the annual income tax rate is that they're paying as they go along year to year, unless that rate is seen as being really uh, uh, out of step or a, uh, an outlier in terms of other uh, states in that in that region. So uh, I think a 1% capital gains tax would not in any way destabilize or frighten the wealthy people in Connecticut to, uh, to moving elsewhere. Some of your colleagues in the legislature have proposed, though, raising that top rate, something that's a bit more aggressive than, than what you're talking about. What sort of conversations have you had with your progressive colleagues about their tax plans, given the fact that I think we know quite well that Governor Lamont is going to be resistant to any sort of increase, yours, theirs, or, or anything? Well, I think it's important to realize that that is a sign of a, of a real interest in our caucus, and I think in the House Democratic Caucus uh, as well, as uh, if we are going to raise some revenue, it should be done progressively uh, through a tax on capital. I believe uh, there are nine, uh, nine Senate Democrats and a number of House members uh, endorsed that proposal, which I think is a 5% increase on capital gains and a, a very substantial increase on uh, uh, high-value property, although they start the tax um, at a higher level uh, with a larger exemption than my proposal, but the tax that they would impose above that level is much higher. So uh, I think that the, the signal for that is that there is a broad-based interest in uh, progressive taxation um, in, in both of our de- both Democratic caucuses in the in the General Assembly. And it's important, I think, to keep in mind that we need to raise some additional revenue to deal with the problem that municipalities have, because uh, given the pandemic and given other uh, uh, burdens that they carry, if if we're not able to provide more aid. Uh, there will be a substantial increase in local property taxes. So it's not as if taxes are not going to be increased. It's just that if they're not increased at the state level, uh, they will be increased substantially at the municipal level uh, or else services will be cut substantially at the municipal level. So there's a lot of things, though, that that Connecticut has to pay for. I I was talking with our budget reporter, Keith Faniff, and he talks constantly about the big fiscal notes that are coming down the road for the state. There are some concerns, certainly, that if we begin to raise taxes now at a time of pandemic, when we have to support municipalities, there's so many people in need that the state could um, give more aid to directly, that we're not going to ever get around to solving some of the big issues that come with the $92 billion of unfunded liabilities down the road. I mean, Senator Looney, how do we start to get to that? Because if if we're constantly just filling the holes and filling the gaps that we have right now with ever-increasing higher income taxes, we may never be able to get at that larger nut that needs to start to come down. And that's probably only going to come through revenue generation too. It is. That is a, that is a problem. But I think the, the greater priority now is to deal with the social needs 
that we, we are facing education, uh, municipal services, uh, and we cannot uh, you know, have a punitive tax burden added on to municipalities. City of New Haven right now would be looking at a uh, potentially a, a 10 mil uh, increase uh, if uh, if we're not able to assist them financially. So I think that that is the immediate problem. It's like it's like triage yeah, to some extent in an emergency room. You have to look at uh, at all of the the patients coming in, uh, but you have to deal with the uh, uh, with the more immediate crisis first. Do Do you think that the governor's been too stingy with uh, his support to towns and cities to to state residents, given the windfall that we have gotten from the stock market? Well, I think that uh, it is interesting to see the. Uh, uh, the, the the split between the the stock market performance and the rest of the economy. We used to always assume that the stock market and the and the general economy were intricately related, but that seems not to be so. That uh, people are struggling, they're out of work, they've uh, uh, even had their hours diminished because of the pandemic, or they lost jobs altogether. Uh, they're struggling. We have people facing potential eviction. Uh, homeowners not able to pay their mortgages, and yet the stock market is booming. Uh, and there, there seems to be a real disconnect between the everyday economy of people living. Uh, and a large number of those people don't have investments, don't have stocks. Maybe they have 401ks, but they don't have uh, 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 individual stock portfolios uh, as much. But but I think uh, we really have to recognize that uh, there is a need to deal with all of the, the suffering that's been caused by the pandemic, uh, both in terms of the health crisis, but also the economic crisis that's with it. Now, all of this can be helped substantially if there is uh, a new federal aid package uh, that provides direct aid to states and municipalities uh, as well as more assistance to individuals in terms of, of uh, uh, more money for uh, employers to keep people on the job or more money for uh, tenants to avoid eviction or more money for uh, landlords to uh, keep tenants uh, from being evicted and still pay their mortgages. So a lot of what we're facing will depend to some extent on whether or not President Biden is successful in getting a substantial additional uh, package of federal aid. That could be, could be transformative. Uh, again, if you look back at uh, 2000, uh, 2009, uh, the first year of the Obama administration, we had the stimulus program dealing with the uh, dealing with the recession at that time. The only the only critique I think of that program was that it wasn't big enough. Uh, it was substantial and it was a, a great help, uh, but it wasn't big enough to to really uh, deal with the overall needs caused by that recession. So I'm certainly encouraging the president and the Congress to go big. Yeah, and it sounds as though there are some uh, arguments in Washington right now about how big Democrats want to go and whether or not that's going to be a big enough package. Either way, though, that is one-time relief, and we're talking about an economic crisis that could continue for the next two or three or or four years. So one-time dollars are only going to go so far as far as helping people out of this crisis. Well, that's, that's true. That's why we have to look at our, our overall uh, our overall budget. So, for instance, the the, the program I'm offering on uh, payment in lieu of taxes deals with the fact that uh, there are tremendous differences in terms of capacity to fund municipal services from town to town based on the individual wealth and uh, and uh, relative robustness or lack of same of the grand list in different communities. So, for instance, the uh, the town of Greenwich has a net grand list per capita of about seven hundred and forty thousand dollars. At the other end of the scale, at 169 out of 169 is New Britain, whose grand list is $50,000 per capita. So you see the stark uh, difference where Greenwich is able to fund all of their services at a mill rate of 11, uh, and many other towns are, are in the 40s or, or even higher. So uh, that's the reality. And the, and the payment in lieu of taxes program uh, has partly addressed that, but the need for revising that to be based on need is even greater than it ever has been because whatever level of funding for pilot, and that is both for the college and hospital pilot and the state property pilot, 
that is set in an annual budget is given to every community that has pilot eligible property regardless of need. So for instance, uh, Greenwich gets reimbursed at the same percentage for Greenwich Hospital tax exempt property that New Haven gets for Yale New Haven property or Yale University property or that Hartford gets for uh, Hartford Hospital property. And, uh, and meanwhile, only four or 5% of the property in Greenwich is tax exempt and they have that whole robust grand list of tax. And in Connecticut or New Haven now, more than 50% of New Haven's real estate is not on the grand list. It's tax exempt. Uh, and that includes not only Yale's tax exempt property and the hospital's tax exempt property, but also property owned by churches and synagogues and social service agencies for which there is no pilot. It would uh, would recognize that everyone's pilot need, but would mean for the, the cities that have the most tax exempt property, uh, a significant amount of money that would help them deal with their crisis. And that, again, is something that would be going forward. We would set that in statute as the permanent rate of reimbursement going forward in that tiered structure. Uh, and that would not only be crisis management for the current budget cycle. The other part of your proposal, which we didn't get a chance to, to talk about, has to do with taxes on the properties that high income earners own. Could you explain that a bit for me? Yes, that that proposal is to have a just a, a one mill, single mill state property tax um, only on homes that have values over four hundred and thirty thousand dollars, or in that case it would be assessed values of three hundred thousand because we we assess properties at seventy percent of what the estimated uh, market value is. And it's interesting to note that uh, there are only sixteen communities in the state out of one hundred and sixty nine uh, that have a median grand list of more than three hundred thousand. In assessed value, so it's a it's exempting a large most of it's exempting a, a most of the properties in the state. Most of the homes in the state would be exempt, but even with that exemption, it would raise seventy four million dollars, and uh, that's something I uh, uh, proposed as something that could address the need for the more funding under uh, pilot and the other things that uh, uh, that we need to address. Now, I have, uh, obviously, the other proposal that was uh, offered last week by uh, some uh, other Democratic legislators would. Uh, raise more money because it would uh, impose a tax based on, I think, a couple of percent, uh, not just a mill, but a much higher tax on uh, on higher value. So there's certainly room for compromise in that uh, in that proposal. The only benefit of the property tax, which is generally a regressive one, that 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 uh, obviously if, if you have a couple with two incomes uh, managing their their uh, property tax and their mortgage uh, well, and one of them loses a job their income tax liability will go down. You assume their spending will go down. So their sales tax uh, uh, spending will go down, but their property tax remains the same because it's based on the asset, not the uh, not the uh, earnings or uh, wealth of the people who have it. The only good thing about the property tax is that it is a predictable source of revenue that is less volatile than any tax that the state levies directly. So you you know what your grand list is. You, you know what mill rate you're going to apply to that. You know what your rate of collection is. So you know what it's going to generate. And that's certainly not true of our income tax. And uh, that's why we adopt the volatility tax a few years ago, because we had seen such a, uh, a cascading roller coaster effect in our income tax. The same is true with the sales tax. Uh, you can have a surge in the economy that uh, produces uh, significantly more sales tax revenues or a decline that can hit the sales tax uh, very hard. Uh, but uh, the property tax at least is a more uh, predictable revenue source. So uh, that's why I put in a proposal that the, the state should have at least one revenue source that is predictable, but that money should then get plowed back into assisting municipalities uh, through municipal aid like the pilot. So even though some people um, in some cities would be paying, as, uh, for instance, uh, under that proposal, people whose houses were worth $500,000 would be paying $50 to the state in that because only the increment above 430000 would be 
subject to this tax. So at, at 500,000, you'd have 350,000 in assessed value, uh, of which 300 is exempt. So it's very, very moderate. Only when you get over a million dollars would people be paying more than several hundred dollars a year um, in that value. But again, that money would be uh, plowed back into municipal aid. So even some of the people who uh, are paying that extra tax would get far more than $50 back uh, in terms of their town getting more pilot relief. So, so you're talking about a, a couple hundred dollars of additional taxes for someone who owns a home that is worth a million dollars. Right. It would be about $400 extra at the million dollar level. It would be $50 extra at the $500,000 level. How does this start to get us toward, or does it start to get us toward some sort of broader property tax reform in the state? Because obviously, as you say, it is largely regressive, even if it's something that we can count on on a regular basis. How do we start to address property taxes in a much larger way? Well, I think that gets us back to the discussion we've begun in a few ways, but it's very difficult in Connecticut, is regionalism, because we have these 169 uh, municipal fiefdoms, uh, all taxing at their own rates, all looking at the value of their own property as opposed to their neighbors. And that's why in Connecticut, these contrasts are so stark. And Bridgeport is a very short distance physically away from Greenwich or New Canaan, but it might as well be on a different planet. Uh, the same thing with New Haven and Hartford and some of their uh, some of their suburbs. So until we're able to do more uh, regional planning and do more uh, uh, taxing on a regional basis, uh, it, we're going to have these stark contrasts and these rank injustices existing next door to each other. What do we do about transportation funding in the state? Uh, the governor is not going to go back to the uh, uh, the tolls debate, I don't think, but he's talking about other plans to do this. How do we actually solve this problem and fix our roads and bridges, make sure that we have... Uh, a modern public transit system as well. Well, I think that that's certainly of great importance. I would certainly support a a, a progressive revenue stream for that as well. If uh, uh, if there could be a consensus on an income tax surcharge or a or a capital gain surcharge that would be set aside for uh, transportation purposes, I would certainly support that as well. Uh, in addition, another uh, issue that we're going to have to deal with in the next budget is the, uh, the so-called MRSA money, municipal sales tax account money that a few years ago we set aside some sales tax revenue for uh, municipalities in addition to what we set aside for the special transportation fund. But that money has never been appropriated to the municipalities. It's always been postponed to the next uh, next budget cycle. So that's another issue we'll have to deal with in the, uh, in the coming, in the present session to deal with the next biennium. Uh, possibly, uh, uh, possibly more sales tax revenue could be uh, put into the special transportation fund. Also, we're we're phasing in use of the sales tax on uh, on motor vehicle purchases uh, to be put that into the sales tax uh, into the motor vehicle fund. I would I would support accelerating that as well to uh, provide more revenue to the special transportation fund. But but when you're talking about uh, sales taxes or maybe even going back to some of these uh, taxes on high income individuals that you'd put aside the special transportation fund, you're not talking about the sort of thing that people usually talk about when they when they mention transportation funding, uh, tolling trucks, taxing trucks, some sort of congestion pricing, something that actually has to do with behavior on the roads. Uh, can you talk about that, that that difference? Because that is usually what we hear as far as the way that you might pay for transportation. Yes, well, I think you know, congestion, congestion pricing is something to look at. I think the uh, uh, regarding tolls, I think the governor is, uh, is not uh, bringing that up again. Um, he did campaign on a limited tolls proposal in 2018. Uh, I think that original proposal uh, might have had a chance of passing in the 2019 session. Uh, but once he uh, changed to the other more ambitious uh, plan uh, on taxing cars as well as trucks, uh, that allowed the opposition uh, to build momentum. 
against holes altogether. Uh, so once the uh, once the original plan was not uh, uh, was not kept to in a way that was uh, focused, um, then all of a sudden it uh, everything got undermined. But uh, but we, we do need to continue to deal with it. We, we certainly hope also that that'll be a, a hallmark of the Biden administration. I know we've seen that uh, former uh, Mayor Buttigieg, as transportation commissioner, is uh, really uh, interested in advancing a significant program of, uh, of rail in the, the Northeast Corridor. I think that signals that the Biden administration is going to be supportive of, of states' efforts to uh, do more on transportation uh, and perhaps add additional state, additional federal money uh, to that project as well, which we which we need to have. Senator Looney, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. Oh, good to see you too, John. Thanks. Be well. Be well. Bye-bye. That's State Senate President Pro Tem Martin Looney. We'll be hearing from some of his Republican counterparts with their budget proposals in the coming weeks on Steady Habits. Hope you can join me. We've got a bunch of interesting events coming up too. Conversations about racial justice, the limits of free speech on social media, and a lot more. You can go to ctmirror.org slash events to sign up to get more information and to watch some of our past events. Thanks to Bruce Putterman, Kyle Constable, and Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson provided our steady beats. They recorded them at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll be back next week. Talk to you soon.